Good morning, church. My name is Roman, and I have the privilege of leading the college ministry here at Grace, as well as the servant leader training program. And I'm excited to get into the Word with you this morning. You know, the truths in today's text actually remind me of the story of my friend, uh, my friend Nate Rob. We were actually both freshmen here at the same time at SFA in 2007. And in fact, we uh, were both interns at Grace Bible Church living in that house that used to be green, now it's white. Uh, Nate's a good friend. Uh, And the thing that stands out about Nate's story in connection to today is that Nate began to learn a different kind of life because of the family he was adopted into. His life changed, practically speaking, because of the family he was adopted into. You see, Nate grew up with a mother who was an alcoholic, and she loved him, and they had a good relationship. But by the time he was nearing the end of high school, Uh, Not only was home an unstable place, shifting around from location to location, but it was unsafe. And so as Nate's mom was making the decision to move back in with a previous boyfriend, uh, he said, I'm going to move in with the Turnage family. Uh, His friend James Turnage is from a wonderful Christian family, close friend of Nate's, and they just threw their doors open and they said, come on in, you have a place here. And on the front end, there's some obvious practical differences in the Turnage family compared to Nate's home. Um, Some of the things that stood out to him that he shared with me was um, the house was just clean. He looked around, things were in order, and things were well kept. It was clean. And at dinner, whenever they would sit down, there was not just the food on your plate, but there was even more than enough. It was all you could eat, he said, night after night. But as he spent a little bit more time in the family, it was deeper differences that really began to sink in for him. At dinner, they wouldn't just eat and then go, but... Momage and Popage, the mother and father of the family, is how they called them. Uh, Momage and Popage would sit with the boys. They would just talk about the day. They would ask them how they're doing. But beyond just the small talk, they would joke with the boys and speak truth intentionally into them. These evenings would be extensive sometimes. He said this was just so different from dinner that he was used to. And as he sat at the table, it wasn't just Nate the outsider as Momage and Popage are speaking to their sons, it was Nate as a son being cared for and shepherded along with the other boys. Another thing that really stood out to Nate in the Turnage family is um, alcohol wasn't an essential for having a good time. He'd grown up in a house where he had seen, if you're going to have a good time, if you're going to have fun, alcohol is at the core of it. And with his friends that he knew in high school, apart from James and his family, it was the same thing. They'd have a good time. Where's all the drinks at? And yet in the Turnage house and at the church that the Turnages took him to, it was not present at all. It was not an essential for enjoying life as a human being. He could have a great time with people apart from dependency on a substance. Another thing that really stood out to Nate is Popage, the the dad, would sit down with the family. He would open the scriptures and he would speak to them from God's word. And they would talk about it together and say, what does this mean for us? And on the front end, Nate said, that was really awkward. I didn't know what to say. This was so different. It was not my cup of tea. But as time went on, he said, I actually began to hunger for that. I hungered and I yearned to be led like that. I wanted to hear God's word. I didn't understand it. But I enjoyed having a man who cared about me, who loved me, sit down and lead me in it. 
things were changing for Nate because of the family he was adopted into. There was one day where Nate said he was in his room and he's cleaning it and making his bed, which is new habits for him. He hadn't done that back at home. But the house was so clean, he felt like, I need to keep my end of the game up. You know, I need to do my part. So he's making his bed, he's cleaning his room. And Momage walks by and sees him and she walks in the room and she says, honey, it's good that you're doing that, but you don't have to earn your place here. We accept you, Nate. You're a part of our family. We love you. You don't have to earn your way here. You're a part of our family. We love you. You're accepted. And that's stuck with him to this day. And those weren't just empty words because whenever mom, Nate's mom died, um, in his senior year of high school, that family said, you're our son. You're part of our family. You're one of ours. And as Nate would spend time with extended family with the turnages, all these people who would be like, who is this guy who's always at Thanksgiving and Christmas and stuff like that? Mama and Papa would say, don't you know, this is Nate, our other son. He's been with us. He was a part of their family. And to this day, Nate is not only a godly believer, a faithful husband, and a loving father, but on his day-to-day basis, he is seeking to help kids do their best. And so he's worked in deaf education as a teacher in the Dallas area, and he's just moved up the ranks. He's now an assistant principal on a daily basis, being with kids to help them do their best and succeed. Nate's life changed because of the family he was adopted into. And what's true for Nate is true for us. We have been drawn from slavery. We have been freed from enslavement to our sins and adopted as sons of God. We're part of his family, and our life is shaped by that. The call of the New Testament is to be who you've been remade to be. You've been freed. You've been adopted. So be who you've been remade to be. And this is not a burden. It's a joy. It's a gift that we get to live lives of freedom as sons of God. And I use that language sons for a reason. We'll get into that as we get into the text today. This is what we're going to see. We're going to be in Galatians chapter 4. If you want to go ahead and open up to Galatians 4. Uh, if you're using the Pewback Bible in front of you, it's on page 974. <clears throat> what Paul is going to do in Galatians 4 is he's going to review the story of Israel. Now remember, in the book of Galatians, uh, Paul has planted this church. He's preached the gospel to these Galatians. He's told them that the Creator God um, did not reject humanity. He rebelled against them. He actually sent his Son to rescue sinful humanity by dying on a cross and raising again. And by believing in Christ alone, you can have life and forgiveness. This is the message of the gospel. This is what he preached to them whenever he first came. And yet, Paul has been followed by Jewish teachers who've said, hey, you claim to believe in the Creator God. Do you keep the law of Moses that he revealed? Oh, you don't? Well, you're not accepted then by him. You're missing something, and you're not right with God until you accept circumcision, until you submit to the law of Moses. And Paul over and over is saying, you are free in Christ by faith alone and Christ alone. You are made right with God. Do not shift from that. 
And so this morning in Galatians chapter 4, what he's going to do is he's going to rehearse the story of Israel. He's going to talk about God's relationship with the nation of Israel to help them understand how these Gentiles have been involved in God's family. So this morning we're going to begin in verses 1 through 7. And what we're going to see is, <clears throat> is this. Through his son, God has freed slaves and adopted them as sons. Simply put, God has freed slaves and adopted them as sons. And he's going to start the story by talking about Israel's past. Before Christ came, while they were children, at an earlier stage, awaiting the fullness of time, while they were children, they were enslaved. Israel was enslaved. So let's go ahead and pick it up in verses 1 and 2. Paul's going to use an image. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he's under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. So Paul starts off explaining what it means to be an heir at a younger age. He, in verse 29 in chapter 3, he just talks, he told the Gentiles, um, non-Jewish Christians, you are heirs along with God's people, Israel, who believed in Christ. If you have trusted Jesus, you receive the promises God has made. And so now he's going to explain previous history, Israel, God's people as his heirs, before Christ came, they were enslaved. They were under authority. And he uses this image from their society that they would understand. The son has inheritance rights, but whenever he's at a young age, at an immature age, he's not entered into his fully mature role, he's under guardians and managers. So in the household, the father sets up figures in the household to be with that son, to instruct him, to guide him in what it looks like to be a mature man, so that when he reaches the age of inheritance, whenever he steps into his role, he's ready. And so the picture is that the son could be walking around and looking at everything and saying, this is mine, this property is mine, these things are mine. These slaves are mine. And yet he is under authority until the age comes when he reaches maturity. Paul uses this example to explain where Israel was before Christ. So pick it up in verse 3 with me. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles or the elemental spirits of the world. So though... Israel was God's chosen people. They were enslaved before Christ. Whenever Paul's using that we language, that's what he's referring to, is the people of Israel. He is a Jew, so that is his story background, and he's explaining in God's saving history, the past before Christ, God's people, Israel, were enslaved. What were they enslaved to? If you take a look in your version. If you have the ESV, your text probably says elementary principles and has a little footnote that says elemental spirits at the bottom. If you're reading the NIV, your text probably says elemental spirits. What's going on? What were the Israelites enslaved to? Now, some translations will say it's elementary principles and they take this as a reference to the law. God set up the law as an authority that enslaved Israel, that they were obedient to these fundamental principles of relating to him. In another view, this word refers to forces of spiritual evil. As Israel was imprisoned under their sin, under the law, they were subject to forces of spiritual evil. And I think that's the way to read this. Let me give you a couple reasons why. Take a look at the end of that phrase in verse 3. 
we were enslaved to the elemental spirits of the world. That phrase, of the world, it doesn't fit with our description of God's law. God's law is holy, it's righteous, it's just, it's a good thing because it condemns sin. It's not worldly, it's not of the world. But also, Paul parallels the story of Israel with the story of Gentiles. So Israel was enslaved before Christ. Gentiles also were enslaved to spiritual evil before Christ. Flip down to verse 8 in chapter 4. Take a look at what I mean. He says, Formerly you Gentiles, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you've come to know God, or rather be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental spirits of the world, whose slaves you want to become once more? Do you see what Paul's doing? He's saying that before Christ, Israel was enslaved. Before Christ, Gentiles were enslaved to spiritual evil. The Gentiles worshiping false gods, giving over to their authority. But the Israelites, how were they enslaved by spiritual evil? It's because that they, they were imprisoned in their sin under the law. This is what Brent has explained so well to us. So if you flip up to verses 22 and 23, in Galatians 3, I want to show you what we've already gone through. Paul is explaining that the law came in as a temporary measure. God gave the law to condemn sin and to hold sinners accountable. That's the role of the law. It doesn't deliver sinners, it condemns sinners, and it imprisons them. Take a look at verse 22. But the scripture, or the law, imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. The law has an imprisoning function. and imprisons sinners under their sin. Verse 23. Now before faith came, before Christ came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. Israel, before Christ, is condemned for their sin. They are imprisoned under that sin, and they're awaiting the future hope. It's a time of looking forward to the completion of God's promises. When they were children, they were under the authority of not only the law, but of spiritual evil. Before Christ, Israel was enslaved. And yet, in God's grace and his mercy, he doesn't leave his people there. Just like the Exodus in the Old Testament where he freed slaves through Christ, he has worked a bigger and better Exodus. He has freed his people from their own sin. So pick it up in verses 4 and 5. We're going to see that God worked through his son to free and adopt believing Israelites. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So first, Paul focuses on God the Father. He's going to focus on God the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, the whole Trinity in this text. But first, he focuses on the Father. In the beginning of verse 4, he says, at the fullness of time, God. That little phrase, at the, when the fullness of time had come, just reminds us that the Father is sovereign over history. Over all things that pass on this earth, God is sovereign. In the working out of his plan of redemption, God is sovereign. Over history past and over your day today, God is in control, not you. God is in control, not me. 
And that's a good thing for us. That a father whose heart is full of love, whose character is good and trustworthy, is in control, is good news for us. And in his good plan, at the fullness of time, he sent forth his son. Not just on some random mission to go talk to people, but on the explicit mission to lay down his life so that the family of God might grow. We struggle to understand how profound this is. That God the Father had a perfect, loving relationship with his son from eternity past. And yet, out of love, the Father sent his son to lay down his life. Why? So that we might become his sons and share in that same intimacy. The Father's love is that great for us. That we would be called sons, that he would give over his son for us. You read Genesis 22, whenever God tests Abraham and he says, hey, I'm going to call you to sacrifice your son. And we cringe at the core of our being. And for those of us who are parents, we think about how in the world could you think about sacrificing your own child? And that's just a glimpse into the heart of God. God did not require that from Abraham. It was a test to see his faith in God was true and steadfast. God did that for us. The father Send his son for the fullness of time. But then Paul's focus shifts to the son. And here's what we see. We see the redeeming son of God became human so that redeemed humans could become sons of God. We say that again. The redeeming son of God became human so that redeemed humans could become sons of God. Pick it up in the end of verse 4. God sent forth his son born of woman. Paul hears of affirming and emphasizing the full humanity of Christ. In the same way that you and I came into the world, Jesus himself came into the world. He is fully human. Why? So that he might fully represent humanity before a holy God. We have a representative who is fully like us in every way. As Hebrews says, he was tempted in every way and yet did not sin. He is like us in every way, born of a woman. But he's not just merely human. He was born under the law. This is Paul's way of saying that Jesus was a Jew. So all the pictures that we have of Jesus with nice, blonde, flowing hair and blue eyes and a nice, thin nose, it's not accurate. Jesus was a Jewish man. He was born of the Virgin Mary in Israel in the first century. He was born under the law, born under the authority of God. He perfectly loved God. He perfectly loved others. That's the heart and soul of the law. So that he might be the perfect representative for Israel. Israel who had failed, who had broken God's law, who had broken God's covenant. Jesus steps in to represent them fully. So that, as verse 5 continues, to redeem those who were under the law. That language of redeem is language of purchasing a slave into freedom. You pay a price in order to purchase a slave for freedom. This is what Christ has done in his death on the cross. Jesus paid the sin debt that Israel owed towards God, that Gentiles owed towards God. The penalty, the curse of sin, Jesus took on himself. And this is what we've already seen in Galatians 3. Flip on over back to Galatians 3.13. Paul says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, the the punishment that we deserve because of our rebellion against God. 
Christ redeemed us from that curse. How? By becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. As Brent explained, when Christ laid down his life on the cross, he was doing that as our representative, as our substitute. He paid for the sin of Israel. He paid for the sin of Gentiles. This is how Israel was redeemed. And they were redeemed so that they might be adopted. At the end of verse 5, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Those Israelites who trust in God's promise, those Israelites who trust in the son that God sent are now sons themselves. Israel's reached maturity. The time of the fulfillment of his promises have come. God's son has redeemed them from being enslaved and they are now free, his sons. And now Paul's going to shift in verses 6 and 7. He's going to focus on the Gentiles and say, this is where you enter into the story. This is what God has done with his people and this is how you've been included by faith alone in Christ alone, Gentiles share in adoption, in the spirit, and in freedom. Pick it up in verse 6. Because you are sons, you Gentiles, notice the switch from we to you. Because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. That pronoun shift in verse 6, you are sons. This is Paul shifting to the Gentiles, the Galatian believers who are non-Jews. And he's saying, you are sons. You are a part of God's family. What Christ has done has drawn you in. He's already made this point up in verse 26 of chapter 3. He says, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God by faith. As men and women trust in the Son of God, they are made sons of God. By faith alone in Christ alone, adopted into his family. And because they've been adopted, look what God has done. He has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. That quote there, Abba, Father, comes from Jesus himself. These are words uttered by Jesus himself to his heavenly father. If there's been anyone in history who could rightly say at a natural level, God is my father. It's Jesus. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, before he lays down his life, as he is preparing to be crushed for the sin of humanity, he prays to the Father and he says, Abba, Father, if there's any other way to do this, let's do it that way. But not my will, your will be done. That kind of intimacy between Father and Son, that is given to us. The son of God who could cry out and say, you are my father, you love me, and that's never going to change. We have that same relationship now. Why? Because the spirit of God has been implanted in you because of faith in Christ. You are sons of God. And ladies, we'll talk about what that means in just a second, okay? We have the same intimacy with the father as the son did. And then look how he explains being a son. He says, Verse 7, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Gentiles are freed from slavery and they have full inheritance rights. All of God's people are heirs because they are in Christ. Now, the emphasis of sons, like Stephen helpfully shared with us earlier, this is not on gender. So we're not primarily talking about masculinity. Uh, what we're talking about is inheritance rights. 
In the ancient world, the son is the one who inherits from the father. That's where the rights go, right? And so when Paul says, you are sons, he knows that there's women in the congregation, obviously. But what he's saying is, male or female, all of you are inheritors of the goodness of God. You share fully in what Christ has done. This is an even playing field. All of you fully inherit the goodness and the generosity of God. Now, what does it mean to inherit from God? I want to show you. So if you would go ahead and flip on over to Revelation 22. Revelation 22. The book of Revelation um, is, is, simply put, a picture of God's judgment, cleansing judgment to remove evil from the world and to renew his creation to be with his people. That's what the whole book of Revelation is about. In chapter 22, judgment and the cleansing of evil has already occurred, and now we get the picture of God with his people. Here's what believers inherit. They inherit God himself, a face-to-face relationship with God himself, and they inherit a role in new creation. Look at verses 3 and 4 and 22. No longer will there be anything accursed. The curse of sin has been removed. It's been dealt with. But the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. This is the way the book of Revelation describes a face-to-face intimacy between God and his people. And you're thinking, what the heck? Why is his name on their foreheads? That's a weird place to get a tattoo. This means to be fully defined by God, to be fully defined in relationship with God, face-to-face with him, defined by God. Augustine said, You have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. There is a longing in the human heart, whether it's consciously recognized or not, to be with God. And in Christ, we know him now by faith. But then, face to face, this is what we inherit, the fullness of God's redeeming work. And then look at this, verse 5, a role in new creation. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Of course, this is referring, the reigning is, of course, referring to God and to the Lamb, but it's also referring to the kingdom of priests that Christ has purchased. God's people, his family, his sons inherit new creation, and they rule with him over that renewed world. And you might be thinking, that's weird. What? He's God and we're not. It's a fitting way to end the Bible because it began that way. God made man in his image and told him to subdue creation and rule over it in a way that represents God. The work of Christ is to defeat sin and restore human beings to how they were intended to be always. This is what we inherit. Face-to-face relationship with God and a role in new creation. Heaven comes down to earth. We don't go up to heaven away from earth. God restores all things and we're with him here. That's a hope I can look forward to. This is the inheritance of God's sons. His people, all people inherit this. Now, what's true for the Galatians, that they've been freed, that they've been adopted, this is true for us just as much today, 2,000 years later. And In the way that the New Testament always does this, it teaches us who we are so that we might be who we've been made to be. And this is the emphasis I want to take today. Be who you've been remade to be as a fully loved, 
freed son of God. So first of all, your loved son of God. So love as those who are fully loved. You are fully loved and so love those around you. Now all this love language, I don't know about for you, but for me, uh, it can get a little bit trite, a little bit stale because it's familiar. That's one of the things I hate about being a human is that familiarity just kind of lessens the power of things. My son's eight months old right now and there's nothing that's boring to him. (laughs) He can do the same thing over and over and over and over. Uh, And I wish that's how my heart was towards the love of God. But it's just refreshing to remember in the ancient world when Christians talked about love as dominant in their relationship with God, this was different. And it was different to the point of being weird and awkward. To the point where Christians were ridiculed. You guys are ridiculous. All your love talk. You see, in, in the ancient pagan world, there was sometimes in good, good situations a view of gods who are favorable towards humans. They provide for them. They protect them. And then there's a view of some worshipers being devoted to their gods. And yet for the common everyday Joe Schmo, lived in fear. He practiced ritual worship. He offered sacrifice with the hopes that he might appease his gods so that his family might be fed, so that his city might be protected, so that disease would not take him and his family. It was living in a world of fear. And you never knew that the gods wake up on the wrong side of the bed today. Did I do enough to appease them? And the Christian message is, you come to God as your father freely by his grace. By his grace. Christ has done everything to redeem you and to set you free. He loves you as his son. You are never alone. You need never worry given the difficulties that you face. You are loved. And the the early Christians not only understood that they were loved, but they loved each other in a way that was inviting even though they were viewed as ridiculous, even though they were small and rejected, even though at times they were persecuted and killed, people wanted to be a part of the Christian community because they loved each other. They were willing to say, hey, I'm willing to be rejected. I'm willing to be kicked out of my family. I'm willing to suffer because something real is happening here. Praise God that that hasn't finished in the early church, that it keeps on going. There's a, a student that we have here named Elizabeth Bobbitt, and I've asked her permission to share this. She was excited because she said, I've never been talked about positively in a church before. Uh, so here you go, Elizabeth. Here's your time. Moment of fame. Uh, Elizabeth is a freshman, and she uh, came to college, and she really came to grace, uh, calling herself an atheist. She had no interest in a relationship with God. And yet... Uh, our pre-K program is so awesome that they talk about it on campus and they say, hey, here's an opportunity to work and serve with kids. So she heard about it and her mom encouraged her to go take the opportunity to work with kids. So she figured, sure, I'm an atheist, but babies are cute. I can go work with babies. So she's working in the pre-K wing. Our awesome workers over in the pre-K wing said, hey, there's a community group where we gather, we read scripture, we pray together, we live life faithfully together. Why don't you come? So she thought, "Mm, it's not going to change my mind, but I'll go ahead and check it out. I might make a friend or two. And when she showed up, she was overwhelmed not just by the way that these people loved each other. Because that can be super intimidating, right? You walk in and everybody knows each other and everybody's really tight-knit and you're the outsider coming in. The thing that shocked Elizabeth is that there was fully a part for her. She was fully welcomed in and loved just like everybody else. 
And over time, her heart was open to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and the love of God's people turned into a love relationship with her creator. God reveals his love through his loving people. This is his gracious work. In church, you are a loving people. You are a loving people. It's awesome to be able to say it's hard to come into a service on a Sunday morning and get out without having been introduced to somebody or, or talk to somebody. You have to kind of try. You have to kind of sit in the back and slip out real quick. You are a loving people. And as Brent has been encouraging us, reminding us our neighbors need that love too. And so we not only invite them to church, we do that, but we also invite them into our lives. God has fully loved you, and that cup overflows to others around you. Who are the neighbors? Who are the friends? Who are the classmates, the roommates who God has placed in your life that you might reveal the love of God to them just by being a good friend? Love because you've been fully loved. And then finally, you're a freed son of God. You're a freed family member in God's family. So rejoice in that freedom. Practically speaking, God approves of you in Christ. In Christ, God approves of you. You're not having to work for his approval. You're not having to work for his affirmation. You don't have to do all these right things so that he might say, okay, yeah, today you're good. God approves of you in Christ. If you have trusted in him, you are fully welcomed into his family. That's what being justified means. So because of that, in Christ, you're free to rest in God's approval rather than striving after man's approval. So many of us live lives driven by, how do I look? Do I have enough favor? Students, you're working for grades, and that's never going to change. I'm sorry, that's just how it works. The rest of us who have jobs, we're working, and a lot of us are wondering, if I do enough work, am I going to get that raise? Am I going to get a promotion? As we're in our relationships with friends, especially if you're young parents, you might look around and think, how do I measure up? How do I stack up around others? Do I seem like a good parent? Do I seem like a good person? Brothers, sisters, rest in God's approval. You are valuable. You are worthy because God has given you worth in Christ. You don't need to search for that somewhere else. I'm not saying don't care about what people think. I'm saying that if the creator of the universe loves you and says, you're mine, you can be freed up from what other people think of you. You're, in Christ, you're free to turn a prayer instead of immediately trying to fix things on your own. This has been so freeing for me in my home. Uh, as the leader of the home, I feel the pressure to answer questions and issues and problems Immediately, my flesh comes up and I think, I've got to step up here. I've got to figure this out. I've got to take care of this. And one of the most freeing things has been to say with my wife, we're going to turn to our Father. We're going to start there. Because I don't know, and I am weak, and I lack wisdom, and I'm a bit overwhelmed by this too, but our God is big, and he's trustworthy. And we can talk to him about everyday matters. In Christ, you are free to turn to prayer rather than trying to fix things on your own. 
And in Christ, you're free to admit your failures and confess your sins rather than justifying yourself. You are a flesh and blood human. You're jacked up. I can say that because I'm one too, and I know it. And yet all of us feel this pressure at different times in different places to put up a front like we got this thing hanging together pretty well. In Christ, you're free from that. In Christ, you're free to confess, I have sinned against God, and I'm sorry, and I turn from that. In Christ, you are free to confess and admit your failures. I've wronged you, and I'm sorry. And in that confession, in that admission, you receive grace. It's been purchased for you fully, past, present, future sins, fully taken care of. You are free to be who you are as a normal, jacked-up human being, as a recipient of God's grace. Yes, striving for obedience. Yes, striving for holiness. But by the power of the Spirit, not by your own strength. This is the grace of God. You are free. Rejoice in it. Now, as we close, it's just good to be reminded that Christian obedience flows from being loved. We don't obey in order to be loved. It's like a slap in the face to our Father to try to earn His love that He's already given us as a gift. That's why Paul is saying, stop doing what you're doing, church in Galatia. You've been given this as a gift. Now enjoy it. Don't pervert it. It's the same thing as Nate heard from Momage whenever he was cleaning his room. He's making his bed, and she said, honey, honey, these are good things, but you don't have to earn your place here. You're loved. You're a part of our family. We accept you. God has said that over you in Christ if you've trusted him. So what are our next steps? How practically does this need to flow out? As we look at our week and we consider how do we move forward from here, our next steps. First, practically speaking, all of us are busy, yes? (laughs) And so what in your calendar needs to be reoriented so that you can invest in loving relationships? Both inside and outside the church. What does it look like to open up your weekly schedule so that you might have the freedom and the opportunity to be God's loving representative to those around you? And then here's the joyful thing. How do you need to exercise your freedom in Christ this week? Where do you need to rest in God's approval rather than striving after what other people think? Where do you need to turn to him in prayer instead of trying to fix everything on your own? These are the gifts and the privileges that we've been given as believers. They are not burdens. They are joy that we have in Christ. Let me go ahead and pray for us as we close. Father, we call you Father because of the work of your Son. Because you have adopted us. You have chosen us and you are not merely obligated to us, but you delight in us. Thank you that we're free. And thank you that we're fully loved. Would you please strengthen us by your spirit to live as those who are your fully loved, freed sons and daughters. I ask it in Christ's name. Amen.